In this episode, we're going to look at the five main Christian end times views, their merits and their shortcomings. If you've ever wanted to learn about the end times, this will be the place to start. Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to the Dance of Life podcast. My name is Tudor Alexander. I'm your host on this wonderful day. Thanks so much for joining me. You know, one of the goals that I have with this podcast is to help you live a better Christian life. And in the next couple of weeks and months, actually, we're going to go on a journey together because we're going to begin this series on the end times. It's going to be an extremely comprehensive series. Um, we're going to be studying every major end times topic. Not everything, but all the major ones we're going to touch on, we're going to go into deeply. Today we're starting a little more on the surface level, and we're going to work our way deeper and deeper as we go. But it's going to be a journey. I'm very excited for it because that is a huge part of living a better Christian life, especially living in the generation that we are living in today. I do believe that we're in the end times. I'm not alone in that sentiment. I think we're in the 11th hour. I don't know when Jesus will return. But I think we're in the generation that is very likely that might see his return. Praise God if that happens. But ultimately, we are living in some crazy times, regardless of your beliefs. I think you can look around any day at the headlines and realize that the world is heading in a worse and worse direction. And so part of living a Christian life is being aware, being having discernment, right? Being prepared, both spiritually, physically, mentally, emotionally for the things that the Bible tells us, which is that there will be a situation where you'll be forced between believing in Christ or rejecting Christ just so you can buy and sell things, right? The mark of the beast. The Bible tells us that there's going to be a future false Christ, a false religion, a false Christianity, an apostasy. There's a lot of things that are in the Bible that are very important to take note of as a Christian. And I think that not too many people, including myself up until I prepared for this series, uh, were very literate about the end times. And that's that's a disservice to your walk with Christ. And so my goal with this series, it's to be very comprehensive, but really it's ultimately to give you confidence. It's to give you confidence to, to make sure you're more encouraged, more empowered in these days that we're living in. Because again, I do believe we're in the 11th hour, and I think that you will share that belief as we move along in this episode, in this series, and hopefully you'll be more encouraged. <laughs> you'll have some tools, at least some discernment going into the future, because I think we're also living in the most deceptive time of history. So a few notes about eschatology. You know, one thing I've prepared probably about 100 hours for this series, not for today's episode, per se, but for this entire series we're going to do, it's probably going to be something like 20 episodes. I really don't know yet because as we go along, you know, certain things get added and so on, but it is going to be extremely comprehensive. Like I said, we're going to look at main, all the main end times topics. Now we're not going to look at absolutely everything. And that's for a reason because there's many end times views, right? And so to unpack every single view and every single Bible verse that they use, that would take you know, I don't know how long, but ultimately we're going to be very comprehensive. And the thing I want to say about eschatology, eschatology is, by the way, if you don't know what that word is, it's a long, you know, uh, theological word. It just means end times, right? It's end time studies. So eschatology, soteriology is the study of salvation, right? Hermeneutics, it's how we unpack the Bible and, and expand meaning from the Bible. Those are just some words that you'll probably hear 
me and other people say, but eschatology is one of these things where it's very important. It's not enough. It's, I'm going to say two things that are contradictory. On one end, not enough people know about eschatology. They don't study eschatology properly. It's sort of that topic that just doesn't get looked at. For good reason in some sense, because it is a complex topic. However, on the other side, some people take it way too seriously in the sense that you you study nothing but eschatology to the neglect of things like studying about the Trinity, studying about salvation, uh, apologetics, right? That's very important to be able to defend your faith. Studying typology. There's so much beauty in typology in the Bible that really helps us understand and appreciate Christ's words uh, in the New Testament. Christ fulfilled everything. And so how do you know what he fulfilled unless you study typology and shadows and types and prefigurement in the Old Testament? So the point is, this is going to be a very comprehensive series, but don't get so caught up with eschatology that you neglect other important things, right? It's very, look, I, I get it. It's very tempting to study end time stuff, to pay attention to how is Bible prophecy. I mean, especially now, right, with, with how the world is. But don't let it distract you from other studies, which are very important as well. That's my point that I want to make with that. Another thing I want to say is eschatology is probably, I think, so far in my journey and studying the Bible in various ways, is probably the hardest or one of the hardest topics in Bible study because there are so many books, right? There's Revelation, Daniel, Paul has some end times stuff. Some of the other prophets have, have end times sort of things about the day of the Lord, right? It's very symbolic, very, you know, you have to study the, the cultural context and why they use symbols in the way they did. You have to study your history and understand what has happened in the world in the last, especially, you know, since the Bible started to be written, which was around 1500 BC, probably even earlier than that with some of the stories like Job. But the point is, the Bible spans an enormous amount of time between the beginning of creation until the end, right? And so understanding history, especially since most of our history has been lied about or altered or twisted in some way, right? History is written by the people who win, that kind of thing. And so you have to study your history. You have to study culture and context. So all those things factor into your understanding of eschatology. And so it's an incredibly rigorous topic. I hope to do it justice. Like I said, I've prepared probably about 100 hours for this entire series, maybe more. I don't know. I've lost count. But it's certainly been a lot of reading, a lot of studying, watching various different perspectives and documenting myself to ultimately come to a conclusion about my own views and hopefully... Um, I'll be able to share that with you in an effective way and in a way that will, again, leave you encouraged and empowered, not confused. So, again, try not to get too much into eschatology, but at the same time, know enough to to, to be wise and to, to have discernment, to not be deceived. That's really the goal here. You know, we're going to touch, touch on a lot of things, right? But it's not about knowing everything. There's still a lot of things that... I don't have answers to, right? I have answers for the, for the present moment to the main things, and I'm happy with those answers that the Lord has shared with me. But, you know, we don't have answers to everything. And that's okay. That's okay. You're not going to have an answer to everything. But the key is that you remember this, and you'll hopefully understand this as we unpack today's topic, which is the five, five main end times viewed. The key is this. Every end times view that's 
you know, mainstream has something true about it that they portray and something that's a major problem. So we can't get too dogmatic about it. We have to see, okay, what are the merits of each end times view and what are the main problems? Because if you learn to scout for the problems, then it helps you either accept or reject a particular view or a particular theory or a particular understanding much easier. All right, so where am I going with this? The point is it's not about knowing everything. It's about knowing enough so that you have good discernment. Okay, that's really the key. Because again, end time stuff is very complex, and especially the world we're living in today, it's so deceptive. Right? So you can easily get snagged into one theory or another if you don't have good discernment, if you don't understand the word. It always comes back to God's word, right? So don't take my word for it. Right? I'm going to do my best to use scripture, to use a lot of documentation. I'm always going to post my resources uh, to every episode at the bottom so you can check it for yourself and really do your own due diligence. But at the end of the day, you have to just take God's word and really study the word so you're very clear. And a lot of these people, look, a lot of every end times view, this is the other part that makes it so difficult. <laughs> Everybody can use the Bible to support their view, right? Every end times view has a lot of brilliant people, very well-read people that justify their view with countless Bible verses. And if if you don't, let me put it this way. It, number one, if you don't have discernment because you haven't studied the Bible, and number two, if you're not the type of person that when you hear something, you know, you just, you don't ask yourself another question about it, right? So you don't pursue further those two things. You don't pursue further and you don't have a discernment. It's very easy to get deceived. I don't mean that these people are deceivers. I don't mean that, you know, well-meaning Christians who are putting forth various views are deceivers. I mean, some are for sure, but the majority aren't. It's just, you know, you have to be rigorous in your study. I have changed my views several times in preparation for this this whole series. I have a view that is, it takes from some of these views and it takes, you know, from other things, but ultimately I believe my view is biblical. It's as biblical as I have been able to, to get it. Um, but the point is, is that everybody believes that their view is biblically justified. So you have to do your due diligence. Again, I'm going to do my best to provide you with scripture and what God's word says, right? So don't take my word for it. Take the Bible's word, but you got to do your due diligence. So my goals today are to outline the five popular main end times views in Christian teaching. We're going to look at the merits of each view, right? What do they say as well as the big problems and why they should at very least be questioned, right? This is, this is my goal today. It's not to teach you anything specifically. It's more to get you to think. It's more to get you to say, hmm. And if you believe in a particular view, if you already hold the view, to, to question that view, to start questioning and saying, hmm, that's interesting. I never thought about it that way. Right? We're going to focus on the main things to avoid in each view. Right? Why there are problems. Right? Why, why they could be written off. Certain things, aspects could be written off. What are some of the merits of each view, right? What are some of the things that they say that maybe might be worth believing? And the goal is ultimately throughout this series is to narrow it down to 
as biblically based view as we possibly can. That's really the goal is by taking a a look at all of these elements and we're going to get into them shortly, but you'll see what I mean. So again, you don't have to know everything, right? Being um, super knowledgeable about the end times doesn't mean salvation, right? So how many prophets in the Old Testament, uh, like Daniel, Daniel's probably the most famous. He didn't understand his visions when he got them. Does that mean he wasn't saved? No, of course not. A lot of the old prophets, that, and even Moses, David, um, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, they didn't understand things like the Trinity or you know, the gospel in its fullness. They didn't understand the incarnation that was about to happen with Jesus. You know, those things were mysteries. They, they had hints. You can tell from the writings they had hints, but they didn't understand those things. So my point in all this is that don't feel too bad if you don't get something. Study, uh, pray, and ultimately be okay with not understanding everything. <laughs> You know, that's, that's something I've had to come to terms with as well because I am hungry for knowledge. I've always wanted to know. And I've realized that some things are just mysteries that we can marvel at and appreciate um, while not being able to understand them fully. And that's okay. That's okay. So, without further ado, how do we know that we're in the end times? Doesn't Matthew 24 verse 36 say that nobody knows the day or the hour? So let's jump to that text. I think that's a very important text, but... There's something even more important within that text that we can look at, which is, let's let's read the text first. So it says, But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. So what does that mean? Does that mean that we are not to talk about end time stuff? We shouldn't get too concerned about when Jesus will come. He might come tomorrow. He might come in 3,000 years from now. Is that what that means? And, and the answer is that, it's not what it means. This has been a very uh, misquoted and mistranslated verse. Ultimately, you have to remember a couple things, okay? Christ and the Father are one, okay? Does that mean that Christ doesn't know when he's returning? Of course he knows. He is God. He, the Godhead is a triune being of complete unity, okay? And so, of course, Christ knows when he returns. So that's not what this is talking about. Another thing is that he gave us a lot of signs. Matthew 24, this entire chapter, where this verse is from, is full of signs of the end times. And of course, depending on how you read the Bible, we'll get into this. Some people think those signs were for, you know, already fulfilled with, for the destruction of Jerusalem. But I disagree. I think if you've read through Matthew 24, it's not just talking about Jerusalem. There are things that are there that are much more relevant to today's generation and, and the latter part of history. So Christ gave us signs when Noah, right before the, ju- the, ju- the first judgment of the world, right, which was a type for the second, when Noah was commissioned to build the ark, what did God do? God warned him 120 years beforehand, told him exactly what was going to happen. Look, I'm going to destroy the world with a flood. Get ready. Right? And so, you know, you look at prophecies in Daniel, Revelation, prophets in the Old Testament, prophecy warning ahead of time what God is going to do is central to God's plan. That's inarguable. Okay, how many parables did Jesus have about being prepared, like the wise virgins, or parables about judgment, like the wheat and the tares, 
right? So, so there's a lot of things that we can take into consideration when looking at this text, Matthew 24, verse 36, that nobody knows the hour. That Maybe it's not meaning that nobody knows, not even the Son knows, so it's just going to be this big surprise. Yes, it will be a surprise regardless if you're a believer or especially non-believer, right? But we won't be surprised as believers in the sense that, oh my gosh, like Jesus is real? Oh no, I didn't believe. No, it's going to be an amazing event if we get to witness it. But we are prepared beforehand to, to understand the signs of the times, and that's the point. So what does this verse mean? Well, if we look into 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2, as a parallel verse for how this word is being used, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So this is Paul writing, and the word know or to know, it's it's the same usage as it is in Matthew 24, 36. So what does that mean? That means that what's what he's saying is to make known, for I decided to make known nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So he's basically saying, look, I'm I decided to just give you the gospel, and that's it. I'm not giving you any extra, extra stuff on top of that. This is a pure gospel. So if we take that understanding back into Matthew 24, verse 36, but concerning that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. What does that actually mean? It means that only the Father makes it known. In the same way that Paul used the word, that same word to know, he actually, it means to make known, right? So the Father only has the authority to make it known when the second coming will happen exactly. Only the Father authorizes that, okay, to, to make it known. There's no, so why, why is this important? This is, has a deeper meaning because anybody who says they had a dream that some angel showed up or they had a dream that Jesus told them that he's coming back on... December 5th, whatever, 2025, I don't know. These things are false dreams. They're false, you know, false light. That's the whole point. The Father only makes it known. So anybody who claims to tell you when the end will come, meaning like setting an exact time for Jesus' return, that's to be ignored because nobody has been given the authority and the knowledge of that precise timing. Right? doesn't mean that we aren't allowed to study end times. It doesn't mean we're not allowed to know, like, where in history are we? God wants us to know, like, look, you're, you're coming towards the end. Repent if you don't believe. And if you do believe, prepare. Right? Now, that doesn't mean um, build bigger bunkers. It just means build bigger tables. Spread the gospel. Tell people about Jesus. Convict the, help convict the world of sin. And, and, and the sin is the sin of unbelief, by the way. It's not just general sin. It's the sin of not believing in Jesus and accepting God's free gift of pardon because they'll be destroyed, right? So that's what the whole point is. You know, God wants us to know the signs of the time so we're not deceived. In fact, Matthew 24 begins with that. See to it that nobody deceives you. That's the whole point is to not be deceived. And so... The conclusion is we are living in the end times. We're, we're, we were told to be watchful, okay? We were told to be watchful. We were given many signs, and we were told to prepare. So what are those signs? Well, let's just go through the list here. I mean, everybody knows about the global world order that we're all moving towards, right? One world government, 
If you look around the world right now, everything's shifting to the right. We had a left push. Now it's shifting to the right. We'll get more. This is all general stuff. We're going to unpack these things in future episodes. Much more detailed to the to the nth degree, but just general stuff right now. Just go with me. One world government. Everything's shifting to the right. It, this is all by design. Dialectics. If you know anything about dialectic, it's basically two opposing you know, dialogues, you know, forces that are being used to push along the same agenda behind the scenes. And some of those dialectics are the Middle East, the whole third temple, the Jewish Messiah that's about to be announced, or depending on when you watch this video, but they have this whole Yannicka guy who's a genius and he's doing miracles. They're rebuilding the temple. You know, what's that going to do in the Middle East? It's going to ignite it. What's going to, what is the war going to do? It's going to bring about a desire for peace. So these types of things, climate change, COP27, if you know anything about that and how they introduced 10 new climate commandments and smashed the tablets, <laughs> and just totally blasphemous on Mount Sinai. It wasn't the real Mount Sinai, but either way, you know, you have these things, religion, look at Protestants. They're all calling for unity with the Catholic church, ecumenism. The Abrahamic family house just opened this year, 2023. And you got to remember, when Christ first came, there was a one-world government. Rome was the one-world empire. What happened before the flood? There was a one-world government and one-world religion, worshiping the fallen angels and, and Satan. What happened afterward? The Tower of Babel. They tried to make a world one-world government yet again. What did God do? He dispersed the people and the languages. So, where are we? We're close to that one world reality. What happened every time in history, again, you got to know your history, when that reality was completed or was about to be completed? Well, God intervened very powerfully. And so, look at other things. Transhumanism, gene editing with CRISPR technology, cloning, both animals, humans. They're talking now about cloning humans. That's a, that's a reality that's on the horizon. Right? You have things like Neuralink and brain chip implants and people like Yoval Newell Harari or whatever his name is talking about how we don't need God and we can basically save ourselves through technology. I mean, these are things that there's nothing new under the sun, just like the book of Ecclesiastes says. Nothing new under the sun. Wars, pestilences, earthquakes, natural disasters, more wars have killed people in the last hundred years than all of history combined. Financial collapse, everybody's pushing towards a digitized currency that can track everything with blockchain, digital IDs, social credit system. You know, this is mark of the beast technology. Surveillance. <laughs> this is a funny story. My my dad got this letter in the mail quite recently from this video a couple weeks ago where literally, get this, this is insane. His insurance company, his home insurance company, sends him a picture above his house that was taken by a drone and you know it's got a little rectangle red rectangle around one of the trees there that are kind of close to the roof and the letter's like hey we noticed that your tree was a little close to the roof and so we need you to you know to cut that tree down or we'll increase your insurance <laughs> can you imagine can you imagine, like, they're flying a drone over your house and policing the size of your tree. This is, first off, 
an insurance company that never paid anything when we had issues with the roof. Um, you know, no issues. I mean, it's been a good paying customer. And literally, you're, you're policing my house with a drone and telling me how high my hedges can go and all this stuff when there's no HOA, but yet you still get police. So this is the type, this is just a, if you, again, have discernment, if you ignore this kind of stuff and say, ah, whatever, it's just technology, you have to have discernment. Where is this leading? Who are the people in charge and what are they going to do with this technology? Digital ID, social credit system. There's an increased gap between the rich and the poor. Increased social tensions. Love of many will grow cold, just like Jesus said. This, we're living in a social media age. Look at what that's been doing to people. Depression, anxiety, identity theft, loneliness. What about the technology like holograms, deep fakes, CGI, chat GPT, Photoshop, lying signs and wonders. You can't trust anything these days. Look at the skyrocketing cases of cancers, Alzheimer's, degenerative diseases. I think there's some something like one in two or one in three people born after 2000 will have the chance of cancer within their lifetime. That's insane. That is absolutely insane. If that doesn't wake you up to the fact that we're at the tail end of the Genesis curse, I don't know what will. I've studied health quite a bit in my in my life, and we are absolutely surrounded by toxic, you know, radiation, EMFs, all kinds of stuff. It's it's completely toxic. If you're not taking supplements, you really need to. And, you know, if you need help with that, go ahead and email me. But ultimately, look, you have to be healthy. Otherwise, you, you can't be ignorant. But you, you cannot be ignorant that the world we live in is completely toxic. More so than at ever any point in history. If you are passive, if you do not take charge of your health, then, you know, you're just going to get eliminated, unfortunately. And I hate to say that, but you have you cannot be passive. I think as a Christian, part of having discernment is realizing this truth about health and, and the the crappy world that we live in. You know, that's that's the truth. So moving on, a couple more items. Men becoming more feminine, transgenderism, family values being destroyed. What about you know, people legitimizing things like gay marriage or trying to normalize pedophilia, moral and social collapse. Look at the Grammys. Look at, you know, what is accepted as music or what is accepted as anything these days. It's it's absolutely terrible. It's garbage. You know, we're also 2,000 years exactly, almost, from Jesus' crucifixion. I'm not setting a time. I'm just saying that's interesting given the parable of the Good Samaritan, where he said, I'll be back in two days. Now, there's a there's a verse that says that a day with the Lord is like a thousand years. Now, again, that could be just poetic. I'm not setting anything. I just think it's an interesting coincidence that we happen to be meeting that mark. And it's also a coincidence you look at, again, the New World Order, Agenda 2030. Where does that coincide with? Well, it coincides with 2,000 years after Jesus' death on the cross approximately. So, you know, it's, we're moving that direction. Look, read the signs. And the final one is the prophecy of the popes by St. Malachi. Now, again, I'm not, I don't give that the same weight as the Bible, right? But again, it's another interesting point to put on the graph and see the trend. You know, we're at the tail end of that. We're at the last, I believe, with the last pope or the second to last pope with Pope Francis. And so, 
what's the conclusion? We're going to get more and more in all these topics, but look, we are in the end times. This is the 11th hour. It's not just the end times. Because technically, uh, and I'm going to argue this in future episodes as well, we've been in the end times since Jesus arrived on the earth and he lived and he died and he ascended. We've been in the end times, right? We've been in the last days, so to speak. But we are in the 11th hour of the last days right now. And so deception is going to be at an all-time maximum. Craziness is going to be an all-time maximum. It's it's going to get worse and worse. I truly do believe that. And if you're not prepared for that, if you think that you're going to be whisked away to safety, preacher rapture, right? If you think that, um, and we'll get into this, some of these views like post-millennialism, if you believe that it's going to get better actually, and it's going to get really, really good before Christ returns. You're not being prepared for the harsh reality that is on the horizon. So we're on the 11th hour, and it's good to be prepared. So what are the five main end-time views? Well, before I get into them, there's a singular point of division that has created these various end-times views, and that point of division is the millennial kingdom, which is found in Revelation 20, and we'll go through the, the scripture in just a minute, but the millennial kingdom is this idea of a period of time, whether it's literal, like a literal thousand years, or just a period of time where Christ is ruling, right? Now the question is, is he ruling in heaven? Is he ruling on earth? Is he ruling after he comes? If he, is he ruling before he comes? That's Those are the big questions that have separated Christians into various end times views. And so, let's take a look at Revelation 20, verses 1 through 6, really quick before we jump into other points that divide people. So, this is called the thousand years. Verse 1, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. So, Satan is also bound during this time, which is an important point and threw him into the pit, and shut it and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. Take note of that. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image, and not received its mark on their foreheads or on their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. There it is again. The rest of the dead did not come to life until a thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. So this is the, the main area where, where the millennial kingdom comes from. There's some other passages too, but... Ultimately, this is, these are the main verses. And so, keep that in mind. We're going to look at different charts and how that millennial reign is placed by different views. But that's one of the main dividing points, which is, which is where is the millennial reign? Is, did it happen right after Jesus ascended? Did it, is it going to happen in the future? Is it a physical reign? Like, where is that? And every view has a good way of defending, at least seemingly good, let's put it that way, defending their viewpoints. So it's very important that you that you learn to sharpen your scriptural eyes, let's put it that way. Now, other points of division 
And I'm, I'm giving these to you so that you become aware maybe of your own biases, of your own way of looking at Scripture, of interpreting Bible prophecy. And so these are important. But other ways that people are divided is literal versus figurative reading of the Bible. So figurative means you're looking at symbols, you're looking at allegories, metaphors, types, and shadows, right? Whereas literal is seeing exactly that. It's seeing literal things, the physical reality basically being uh, fulfilled, right? And so this is a very important distinction because as we'll get into in the future, these two ways, just alone, these two ways of reading the Bible can make a drastic difference on how you interpret your end times eschatology. So there's a couple of principles that you should be aware of, which is, first is there's double fulfillment in prophecy. So if you don't know what typology means, it's basically when something happens in the Old Testament, which is a common example, as a prefigurement or a shadow of something that's much bigger and truer and more important in the New Testament, right? All the typology surrounding the Messiah, for example, like Joseph and his brothers. That's a whole story of typology that symbolizes or prophesizes, prophesies about Jesus, the suffering servant who redeems everybody, right? Joseph was a type of Christ, just like Adam was a type of Christ, Moses was a type of Christ, David was a type of Christ. All of those people were real people, but they also, their lives were prophetic in the sense that they foreshadowed the Messiah. And in the same way, we can look at prophecy as having a multiple fulfillment or double fulfillment, right? So for example, Jerusalem being destroyed physically, right? resembles a spiritual reality that's maybe greater about spiritual Jerusalem, the, the body of believers being attacked or surrounded in the end times by the Antichrist and his forces, right? So these types of things are very important because it allows you to see the broader scope of Scripture. If you're very literal, you're going to see just the literal aspect, right? You're just going to see, well, Jerusalem got destroyed, so it's fulfilled. No further meaning for us in the end times, right? Or if you're strictly literal and symbolical and, and, you know, spiritualizing everything, and you'll see some of the views do that, you miss the significance of history, right? So my particular point is that it's important to see both. It's important to understand when should we be literal with something and when should we be figurative, or do they both apply, right? And so this is, this is an important thing to keep in mind. Don't be too much on one or the other. Another one is that the physical precedes the spiritual. And we get this from uh, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 46. So let's jump to that really quick. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. This principle, Paul is talking about the resurrection, but he's also talking, about, he's commenting on a broader, you know, spiritual reality. The verse before that says, thus it is written, the first man Adam became a living being. The last Adam, which is Jesus, became a life-giving spirit. So in just in this verse alone, again, going back to types, he's affirming that Adam was a type of Christ. And there's a lot in there, too, about how Adam and Eve represent Christ in the church. So anyway, that's a whole different topic of study. But the point is, the physical comes first, then the spiritual. There's a physical thing that happens, 
And that typifies a spiritual reality. So that's an important concept we're going to be revisiting over and over in future episodes. So keep it in mind. And another point of division is, do you do you see time prophecies in Scripture as literal? Or do you see them as representative? Or do you see them as day or year uh, principle oriented? So I'll, I'll break these down in a second. For example, <clears throat> I had to clear my throat there for a second. Sorry about that. So literal would be like the 1260 days. In Daniel and Revelation, they mention a period of 1260 days. Do you see that as literal days? Do you see that as the day-year principle where he's actually talking about 1260 years? Or do you see that as neither and it's just kind of a spiritual meaning? Like it means, you know, 400, you know, 420 times three and 400 represents this and, you know, multiply by seven and seven means completion, whatever, right? So ultimately, there are three ways to read time prophecies. There's the literal, just literal. That's what it says. It's, it's days. There is the day-year representative principle. And then there's kind of the, the complete symbolical way of reading time prophecies. And there are a lot of very well-educated people on each side of the spectrum. And the point is understanding, okay, how can how can context help me understand what the true meaning of these time prophecies are? And we're going to break those down. But again, it's one of those things to be aware of. How do you read time prophecy? You personally, are you attached to one way of reading over the other? And are you okay with changing your mind? I, like I said, I've had to change my viewpoint quite a few times. It's required a lot of stretching of the brain to entertain one idea and then to kind of believe it and then realize that it's not true or maybe misguided and then believe another thing and so on. So it is some mental growing that you'll experience. But those are some pretty key ways that people are divided. Now, another one is how do you see history unfolding? Are you a preterist? Are you a historicist or are you a futurist? Preterist, and a lot of people can have preterist leanings depending on what they believe in it's not a preterism is not necessarily a end times view although it can be we'll cover it but preterism is just things already happened it's in the past this is very important preterism relegates all that's in prophecy to the past it's been fulfilled or it's not relevant to us and, and keep in mind why that's going to be important because there's a lot of things happening today that um that preterists are ignoring because they think it happened in the past. Historicist sees prophecy as being valid throughout history, right? It was valid for the people at the time. It's valid for the people in the middle. And it's valid for people at the end. It doesn't see that prophecy is only valid for people at the time of Daniel, or it's only valid for the last generation, but rather every generation can find themselves within the timeline of history. And that's the one that I lean into. It's not a very popular one anymore, um, but it is, I think, the correct way to see Bible prophecy, and I'll hopefully be able to defend that. But the final way is futurist. That's the, that's really becoming a lot more popular these days. That's the main way of seeing Bible prophecy, which is everything will happen. It's in the future. Times Time prophecies are literal, right? They're not figurative or day-year principle. Historicist would see day-year principle, right? So instead of 1260 days, they would see 1260 years, right? And so there's differences in how you see time and how you see when things happened and when they were fulfilled. So that's going to come into play as well. 
Another thing that comes into play is your religious denomination. So, for example, Baptists have a different eschatology than Catholics, than Charismatics, than Seventh-day Adventists, uh, you know, than Orthodox. Everybody has different eschatology. And the goal here is that, again, regardless of your denomination, I'm non-denominational. I don't partake to any denomination. And I think that's the way that the church was supposed to be, to be honest with you. But either way, um, I have found things that different people from different denominations say that are good and profitable, and I and I find that they get snared up in other ways. So you have to develop an ability to really gain confidence with this stuff. You have to develop an ability to take something in, take you know, take the meat, spit out the bones. Right, that's really the key here, and the only way to do that is to be rigorous in your study. But many evangelicals, for example, are futurists. Many evangelicals today believe in a pre-trib rapture. They're dispensationalists, meaning they read the prophecies very literally, and we'll break that down in a second. Um, the Reformers, as a contrast to that, were historicists. They saw Bible prophecy being fulfilled in a very different way, and we'll get into that as well. Another thing that divides people is whether Christ is king now or in the future, Right? And some people who are super preterist believe the king that Christ was already king in the past, and we'll get into that as well. Another one is Satan being bound. Is he bound now or is he bound in the future? Is there a pre-tribulation rapture? Is there a mid-tribulation rapture? Is there a post-rapture? Is there no rapture? That's another topic, which will be the next video or next podcast on this. Um, and how do you see Israel's role after the cross? That's another big dividing line. Are the prophecies in the Old Testament already fulfilled, or do they still need to be? Did the church replace Israel? Is Israel still having things to do with God that he needs to fulfill with them? Is the church an expansion of Israel? Right, So that would be covenant theology. And, of course, is church is the, are the church and Israel separate in their plan of salvation, which is dispensationalism? We'll, we'll break this down in a second. But as you can see, there are a lot of points of division, and so we're going to tackle each of these in the, in the following episodes. Today is just a surface-level view of these views, so you can start to get an idea and start mapping this out and map your own views, which is very important, so you don't get confused. Um, but you can see there's a lot of points of division. Now, there's more than five views because there are variations on each of these things. And my view... I don't even have a definition for it because there are certain things, I, I believe, again, that it's as biblical as possible. But, again, some people are right about certain things. Some people, I feel, they're, they're off the mark with others. And so, constructing your own view is understanding each of these points that we just covered, points of division, and what does the Bible truly say about it? That's going to be our goal in, in the in next at least six episodes before we start getting into Daniel and Revelation and so on. But that's going to be our goal, is to look at each one of these individually and say, okay, what does the Bible truly say about it so I can make up my mind, rather than saying, oh, I'm a premillennialist, or I'm a postmillennialist, or I'm an amillennialist, or you know, whatever other version of the millennial view there is. Rather than trying to commit to some view like that, just what do you believe about Satan being bound? What do you believe about Jesus being king? What do you believe about the church in Israel? Let's see what the Bible says. That's what you should believe, right? So the point is to know the basics of these views. So you start creating a thought map 
again, they each have something that's true, but ultimately they, they have some very serious problems, and I hope to outline those for you to make you question, to really to, to make you go, hmm, because it certainly did with me, and that was one frustration that I had, is that no matter who I listened to, there was always problems. They had some good things to say, but then it's like, dang it, man, you know, I, I just can't get over this one or two points that are very serious the- theologically, and nobody ever addressed it. And so ultimately, that's why I say that to get the correct view, or as biblically correct as possible, you're going to have to do a little pick, picking and choosing and studying. And I believe you can come to a, a consistent view without compromising anything or having any you know, holes in your logic. But either way, each view has its serious problems. We're going to focus on the core beliefs and the core problems. So, for example, if we can prove that there's no pre-trib rapture, then you can reject that. You can reject that and any view that's promoting that can now be questioned. If we can prove that Christ is reigning as king or if he's not reigning as king, then that narrows it down even more, right? If we can prove what the relationship between Israel and the church is, right? Did Israel, is there a separate relationship of salvation? Is there, did the church replace Israel? Is there a new covenant? What is there exactly, right? That's going to help a lot to weed out through all the information that we're getting from various people about end time stuff. If we can prove that Satan is bound or he's not bound, right? That's going to help you understand where you're at in history and what to look for. So all these things are very important. All these views help us reject something and by process of elimination. That's the key. You're, you're not going to study every single detail of every single view. That would take you a lifetime. The point is to study enough to understand, okay, what is not correct so that I can not get too invested in this and weed through all the misinformation. So without further ado, there's a good, um, and if you're listening to this podcast, then uh, there's a good link I'll post in the description, or you can find it too. Just look up um, in Wikipedia the, the millennial views, but there's a good chart. Just pull it up here. It's called the four end times views. So this has four end times views and it has four of them. We'll, we'll cover a fifth one because I believe it should be in here and it's not for some reason. But either way, this is a good chart we'll be using. And it, it visually outlines the timeline of history from the cross until the second coming. And it's just got simple, you know, little graphics of, okay, how does each view view these various important things like Satan being bound, the millennium, uh, you know, the, the final judgment and all that kind of stuff. So that's that's a very good resource. But the first view that we're going to jump into is pre-millennialism, okay? And, and there's a different wording for this, so don't get too caught up with the wording. One wording is the historic premillennialism, may basically meaning that that was most the, the more common view of the church. It was historically that. It was historic premillennialism or post-trib premillennialism, and you'll understand why it's called that. But millennial, remember, millennialism is the millennial reign of Christ in Revelation 20. Pre-millennialism means it's pre, that God or Christ will come back and then the millennium will, will get instituted. See how that works? So he's pre-millennialism. His second advent is pre the millennium. Okay, so they believe that Christ will return. And then there'll be a, a 1,000 literal period of Christ ruling on the earth. 
Okay, it's, it's an older view that it's been around. It's one of the more popular ones in the church historically, although now other things are becoming more popular. They believe in a mid or post-tribulation rapture. They, they don't believe in a pre-tribulation rapture. And as far as Israel goes, uh, they believe in either replacement theology, where the church totally replaced Israel. Israel was the chosen people just for the Messiah. And then the church came, and that fulfilled basically the new role. Or they believe in covenant theology, where the church is an expansion of Israel. It's basically grafted into Israel through the new covenant, right? But they both have the same plan of salvation. Premillennials also believe that Satan is bound on Christ's return. This is very important. He's released after a thousand years of Christ ruling on the earth. And they basically believe that history will get worse, right? So as we get towards closer to Christ's return, History is going to get worse. That's a, a main point about premillennialism as compared to other ones that you'll see that think it's an optimistic horizon. Now, what are the main problems with premillennialism? Well, this, this was my view for a while, and I certainly believed it pretty hardcore. I studied a lot about it as much as I could at the time, but I was wrong about it. And the thing that made me start to question it, there's two things. Two very serious problems that you have to reconcile if you believe in a future physical millennium. Why is The first one is, why is Satan released after Christ reigning for a thousand years on earth? doesn't make any sense, right? The, the, the excuse given is that, well, you know, people that are basically reproducing during the Great Tribulation and they get admitted into the kingdom, they're going to have kids, and so those kids need to be tested again. And God needs to prove that even if he's ruling on earth, you know, and in his presence, people will still make the wrong choice with free will. And I mean, it sounds interesting, but there, there's just a lot of nonsense baked into that. And I can prove it to you. So ultimately, when we look at the timing of things that happen, we get glorified bodies at Christ's return. Okay, we'll look at verses for all of these. We get caught up together. So the people who are alive in the final moments when Christ comes back, they will get caught up with the people who are going to be resurrected. Everybody gets caught up and meets Jesus in the air. That's another thing to remember, by the way. No matter what happens in the coming months and years, no matter what happens, don't forget that the Bible says we are going to meet him in the air. Don't forget that. That cannot be faked. So... I'm just going to leave it at that for now. But the question is, if, if people are getting transformed, we're going to be like the angels. We're going to get new bodies. We're not going to reproduce with those bodies. There's, there won't be any need for it. The question is, how can there be more people during the millennium? Where is that? Right? So how are people getting tested? And why would that happen anyway? Because Eden had already proved the point. Eden was the presence of God. Eden was a perfect situation, and man fell, right? He used his free will to, to fall. So why would God have to prove that all over again? After all of this, to prove that again doesn't make any sense. And again, millennial reign implies, a future physical millennial reign of Christ on earth implies that there is sin and death while Christ is physically here in his glorified form ruling the earth which I absolutely reject. I reject it because that just doesn't jive with what we know, 
what the Bible says, what we know about Jesus, and ultimately, things that have we just talked about, which is the timing of of events at the at the end of the age. So, for example, First Corinthians fifteen verses fifty one through fifty two. Behold, I tell you a mystery: we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. All, everybody, changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. So if you're alive, you're going to be changed into a glorified body. 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 15 through 17. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive who are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself descend heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and the sound of the trumpet of God. Same thing again. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Don't forget that. If you remember one thing from this entire series, don't forget that. And so we will always be with the Lord. And so the one more verse. Let's hit this home for a second. Mark uh, chapter 12, verse 25. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. It's very clear from these verses, and we're going to unpack this more in future episodes, but it's very clear just from these initial verses that when Jesus returns, the dead will be raised, those who are alive will be transformed, and everybody's going to meet him in the air. If you're transformed, your body is a, it's the resurrected body that Jesus had when he resurrected. They are like the angels, meaning they don't go into marriage. They don't need to reproduce. There's no need for that anymore. And so the question is, if that happens, just assuming premillennialism is true, if that happens, who is going to be reproducing? Right? And some people say, well, the people in the, the rapture, you're going to get raptured, and whoever's left, you know, those people are going to have kids, and they're going to get admitted into the kingdom because they became born again while being under great tribulation. And so you have these two types of people. You have people who are given resurrected bodies, but then people who are faithful, who, who still have to die, and they're not going to be given a resurrected body. I mean, that doesn't make any sense. Why would there be death during the millennial kingdom? Why would there be sin after everybody's been killed? I mean, think about all the enemies have been killed, according to the Revelation. People have taken the mark. God's wrath has been poured out on the earth. You know, Satan's been imprisoned. Why would you, you know, why would you reign to put the enemies under your feet, as the Bible says? And why would there be sin and death during the millennial kingdom of, of Christ coming physically on the earth? Just imagine that I mean, in like a glorified form. Doesn't make any sense. So we have to reject that. We have to at least question the premillennial view. And if we go back to our chart, this is post-tribulational premillennialism. So basically you have the, the cross. This is when Jesus came to the earth. You have... Tribulation starting at some point right before the second coming, usually seven years, because it's a literal time frame. Remember how we read the Bible figuratively or literally or symbologically. You have the second coming, you have a thousand year literal period, and then you have the final judgment after that where the wicked are raised and then eternity is ushered in. So that's what premillennialism teaches. However, we just looked at these problems and so we have to question whether or not this is an accurate view, and it isn't. The question is, why would there be sin and death 
if Christ is physically present in his glorified form reigning on the earth, and the Bible tells us that everybody's going to be resurrected and transformed. If you're alive at that point in time, you'll be translated into a new body. So those are things to think about. But the second view is dispensational premillennialism. So it's still premillennialism, meaning that they believe that Christ is going to come and then there'll be a 1,000-year literal period of him reigning on the earth. But dispensationalism is a specific term relating to a theology created by John Nelson Darby, and that was in the mid-1800s. And basically what Darby presented was this dis- history is in dispensations, a dispensation of God. It's basically kind of like, I mean, I hate to say it, but it's like a mood that God had, a way that he basically was doing salvation, right? It's a period of time where God was acting a certain way with with people, right? So some people say it's three periods, some people say it's up to eight, but examples would include innocence, which is the period of of Eden with Adam and Eve. Then you have conscience before the flood. Then you have the promise from Abraham to Moses. Then you had the law from you know uh, Moses to Jesus. And you had grace from Jesus to the rapture. And so you had these different dispensations where different rules apply basically the way, you know different ways that god is unfolding his plan of salvation they also believe this is a very key point in a pre-tribulation rapture so basically the idea that the church will get raptured out of the world secretly and those who are unbelievers will remain as a chance to basically repent and come to uh, the lord and that also israel during this time is given a chance to repent and basically turn back to Christ. So it's basically for Israel. Jacob's trouble is is what it's called. Dispensational premillennialism is relatively optimistic about the future because they don't see themselves as being part of any tribulation. The church will get raptured away, and so there's nothing to to fear. We're going to get raptured. Jesus is going to come and get us, and... We won't have to deal with anything. So they're generally optimistic about the future because of the rapture, pre-trib rapture. They also believe the promises of the Old Testament will be fulfilled to Israel. So, for example, if you read Old Testament prophecies like in Isaiah, Zechariah, they believe in a literal way of reading that. They believe that certain things have not been yet fulfilled and that those things will be fulfilled during the millennial reign. And that's another reason why there is a millennial reign, so that God can fulfill his promises to Israel. There's still the church, excuse me, there's still the chosen people. Um, and they have separate plans of salvation. Basically, Christians have church and grace and what was offered through Christ. And Israel has kind of its own special plan with God because they're still the chosen people. So what are the problems with dispensational pre-millennials, trying to get these words right. Well, first one is that they see everything too literally, right? So being so literal prevents you from seeing the greater context of the Bible, right? They don't see types and shadows and progressive revelation, metaphors. I mean, think about things like when Jesus said, eat my body, drink my blood, right? Was he like literally talking about a physical consuming his body and eating his blood? In fact, the whole passage where he says that people left because they thought he went, he was meaning it literally, and that was a test. 
That was a test. And people like in the Catholic Church and Orthodox Church, they still don't get it. They still think that Christ is physically present in the Eucharist and you're eating his body and drinking his blood, which is just, we're not going to get into that, but that's the problem with literalism. Let's put it that way. The other thing is, it makes God conditional. This whole idea of dispensations, where God is acting differently throughout history, it's not consistent with the Bible at all. It really just isn't. If you if you read Hebrews 11, let's go there, and we're not going to read the whole thing, but this is such a good chapter. I mean, all of the Bible is beautiful, but in regards to this particular topic, by faith, okay, we're just going to read the first couple of verses. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And so it just goes on. This is like the hall of faith, hall of fame, hall of faith of the Old Testament. And it just, it's very clear that throughout history, and it's clear even if you just read the Bible in general, that God has always been the same God. He doesn't have dispensations. He doesn't have different moods. He doesn't have these wildly different ways of, treating humanity. It's always been about faith. That's the point. That's the whole point of this chapter. Faith is the common denominator of history. God always counted everybody, whether they were Israel, before Israel, after Israel, through the lens of faith. And faith leads to righteousness. So it's not consistent with the Bible to believe that God has these different dispensations, and it just paints God as being conditional, whereas God doesn't change. We know that from scripture. So another one is that Israel and the church being treated as separate entities with separate plans of salvation is not in alignment with scripture whatsoever. And we'll break this down, but look, just a couple of verses. I have a whole series of episodes devoted to this, but just a couple just to, just to get started to put the context out there. Galatians 6.15, for neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. Acts 13, verses 38-39. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Very important. Everyone who believes. It's always been about faith. 1 Peter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen race. Who is this? This is believers. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellence of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Amen. But look, this is talking about Christians, the believers. Peter is acknowledging here, you know, they all understood typology in the Bible. They understood that the physical things that happened through Israel were types and shadows for a more broader spiritual reality that would be fulfilled through Christ. And so when Peter is talking about a chosen race, a royal priesthood, he's making an allusion to the type that Israel was for the future reality, which is a community of believers of all people from all different countries and lands. That's the church. I'm not talking about a physical institution. I'm talking about the body of believers. That is the new reality. And that was a, remember, the physical comes first, and then the spiritual. 
Galatians 3, verses 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all in one. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. <clears throat> Excuse me. We're all one. Romans 4, 11 through 12. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believed without being circumcised so that the righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Such beautiful language. And really, again, we'll see more of this, but circumcision, again, physical, then the spiritual. How many times does God talk about uncircumcising your heart? It's kind of a, a very visual metaphor, but it's a very powerful metaphor, right? Because we have hearts of stone. We have this covering on our heart that makes us resist God and resist the word. And the whole circumcision process was a physical type for a spiritual reality. God is spirit. And so we have to look at these verses openly and ask ourselves, are we being too literal if, if we believe in dispensationalism? And the answer is yes. Last one, Ephesians 2, verses 14. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. I mean, it can't get any more plain than that. You know, Jesus came to divide, or I'm sorry, to, to heal the divide between man and God. And in so doing, he also healed the divide between a chosen people and an unchosen people. And we'll get into more of this. If you don't believe this, then just stick with me, please. Because ultimately, when you believe that Israel has a separate plan of salvation, it's not in alignment with the Bible. It really isn't. And ultimately, if, if, they do have a separate plan of redemption. What does that mean? That means there are two classes of believers again. There's separation. Do you see what that does? You know, today we have people like Christian Zionists that are, I think, disrespecting God, to be honest with you. But either way, we can get into that in another episode. But they're pushing for the third temple, for the Jews to rebuild their temple, to institute their sacrifices again. What an affront to God that you believe that that's a good thing because it's fulfilling Bible prophecy. It's not, and we'll get into that. That's a deception. It's a huge deception, but it's happening. And if you believe, <clears throat> excuse me, if you believe that dispensationalism is true, that Israel has its own plan of redemption, you support division. You support this dividing line that Jesus came to heal. And so we can't do that. You know, how many countless parables that there's always been either believers or non-believers. There's no segments of different believers. There's, do you believe or do you not? Look at all of Jesus' parables. Wheat and the tares, sheep and the goats, the parable of the sower, the good fish, the bad fish. I mean, there's so many, and it's always been about two classes of people, the believers and the unbelievers. There's not two classes of believers which is what dispensationalism ultimately leads to. So you have to be careful with that. The other thing is, which is what we're going to cover in the next episode, and I hope I hope people who believe in this will be um, 
encouraged to see the truth, but there is no pre-tribulation rapture. If you believe in that, um, you know, I certainly maybe did a little bit at one point in time, but if you believe in that, it's not biblical. I'm sorry to say it. It's really not. There's so many pre-trib rapture predictions that have happened, and especially now, it breaks my heart to see well-meaning Christians posting on YouTube, I had a dream that Jesus told me that he's coming for the secret rapture and he's coming presenting like, dude, you're being deceived. Jesus did not tell you that because there is no pre-trib rapture. Now, I hope I'm completely wrong in all the things that we're going to cover next episode, all the Bible verses, all the uh, history. I hope that's all wrong. I'm open to being corrected halfway through the air, but um, everything I've studied in the Bible and everything that we will look at says that there is no pre-trib rapture because everything happens when Christ returns. He's not returning a secret time and then a second time and then a millennium and then the third time, the third event. Everything happens all at once and that's something that we will look at extensively, the timing of those events. But if you believe in a pre-trib rapture, it's not preparing you for tribulation. Every generation before us of Christians has had to be prepared for tribulation. We'll get into this more into the next episode. We're going to cover the pre-trib rapture, the history of it, all that stuff. But I want to briefly touch on something, which is the Jesuit origins of the pre-trib rapture and mostly dispensationalism. Now, if you know anything about the Jesuits, which we will definitely be covering quite a bit in this series, not so much today, but I want to pull up an article. Um, it's called The Origin of it's by H.C. Martin. It's actually a book, The Origin of Dispensational Futurism and its Entry into Protestant Christianity. And again, I'll, I'll leave the links for this. And it's a great book if you want to consult it. But I'm going to read kind of the, the main gist here. Today, many Protestants have departed from the Christian interpretation of the prophecies in the book of Revelation and many other passages in the Word of God. Church history has not left us in ignorance concerning the false dispensational interpretation of the book of Revelation. Preterists declare that the Antichrist power of Scripture had already come and gone, being fulfilled in the Roman emperors Vesparian and Titus, who had attacked the Jews, ransacked Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, and slaughtered over one million people in the year 70 AD. The other school, known as the Futurists, say that the great power must be future, teaching that it would not appear until the second advent of Jesus Christ. The originator of this second erroneous thesis was a Spanish Jesuit priest, Francisco Ribera, in 1590. As he attempted to advance the Roman Catholic counter-reformation, got to keep all these things in mind, Ribera was embarrassed by the persistent Protestant identification of the papacy with the Antichrist. Hmm. To counter this, he revived a futuristic interpretation of the book of Revelation, he placed all but the first three chapters in the future. Antichrist was restored to a person and an individual ruler, not the Pope or a system, who would arise in the future. Antichrist would reign for three and one half literal years, and his teaching was embellished with the rebuilding of a temple at Jerusalem, revival of the Levitical laws and sacrifices, plus various Jewish aspects in addition to the wholly unfulfilled persecution of the church. This futuristic interpretation was popularized by Cardinal Bellarmine and became widely accepted within Romanism. So, look, here's the deal. We're going to get into this. This is deep stuff. This is not going to be in this episode, but we have a lot of episodes 
dedicated to unpacking everything I just mentioned here, or I quoted. But you got to look into this, okay? The Jesuit history, the Jesuits were created to counter the Reformation. When the Reformation happened, that was a danger to the Catholic Church, the empire, the political religio empire. And the Reformation rightly recognized that power as the Antichrist power on the earth. And so that was a problem. People were starting to read their Bibles again. That was a big problem. And so the Counter-Reformation was started through the Jesuits. If you know anything about learning against learning, if you know anything about the whole history, right, we're going to be covering lots of history in this series, then you will see that these beliefs that people share today, that they think they're so biblical, they're actually not biblical at all. They were created to divert attention off of the papacy, off of the true Antichrist power on the earth, and it was an eschatology that was created to be physically minded, and they're playing that out right now. It's all, it's it's crazy. It's really crazy, but I'm going to leave it at that because there's a lot to talk about that. Just look into those views and where they're coming from. But basically, if we look at the timeline again, let's go back to the timeline. If we look at pre-tribulational, dispensational, premillennialism, and again, if you're listening to this, you can check uh, Wikipedia, just look up millennial timeline or Christian millennial views, but you have the cross, then you have the rapture. This isn't by scale, by the way. It's not, this is like, this is not like 500 years and a thousand years. This is just events that are happening in order. So you have the cross, then you have the second coming for the church only, which is a rapture. Then you have a period of tribulation, seven years, literal years. Then you have, this is where the Antichrist does his thing, right? He sits in the temple and proclaims to be God. Then he breaks the covenant and all this stuff that we'll get into. Then the second coming with the church, right? He's coming back with the people who got raptured. Then there's a physical millennium and then there's a final judgment, right? All these things seem interesting until you really do some more due diligence on them. So that's that's the order there compared to the first one. Now, preterism is number three. Preterism is just the idea that things happen in the past. They're already fulfilled. So, for example, the tribulation is not some future thing, but rather it happened in 70 AD when, when Jerusalem was getting basically ransacked. You know, Christians were being persecuted by Nero. That was the Great Tribulation. And the Antichrist was in the past. That was like Nero. That was Antiochus. You know, there's a lot of theories when it comes to preterist Antichrists. Many views. And, and a lot of views can have preterist elements, like, oh, I believe that this was already fulfilled. Well, why do you believe that? That's interesting. So be aware that preterism, thats this is the one that I mentioned that wasn't on the, the timeline chart. Preterism is a view, and particularly the one I want to highlight is hyper-preterism, okay? Because preterism as a general view is just how you see history. Do you see things as already fulfilled, right? That's a preterist view completely already fulfilled. If you see them as fulfilled, but then they were types and shadows for future spiritual realities, that's not preterism. That's historicism. That's seeing like double fulfillment in prophecy. Preterism is when you're saying everything that's, that's this verse is saying or this chapter is saying has been already fulfilled. I don't need to worry about it anymore. And that's a dangerous way to think, I think, in terms of Bible prophecy. But hyperpreterism, which is very popular, unfortunately, in the online conspiracy theory, alt-right, you know, 
conservative way of thinking, you know, people who have all these YouTube channels and, and exposing the dark kind of channels. And so what is hyperpreterism? Well, it's connected to this view. I'm not going to break this down because it's another can of worms, but it's connected to this whole view of Tartaria. And basically ancient history has been rewritten. Nobody knows what ancient history is. There was an ancient advanced civilization that was worldwide and it was called Tartaria. And part of the evidence evidence we can see in architecture, especially in Europe. And that's actually the millennial reign. That's when Christ was on earth. And, and they're trying to hide that from us. And again, it's very compelling if you don't study the word. I believe this for a little bit of time. I, I actually was like, oh, that's really interesting. I wonder if it's true. And it, it snagged me for a little bit. But then I studied the word. This was several years ago when I was getting into this stuff. And I realized that it's, it's a false teaching for several reasons. But I want you to be aware of that because it is a very popular idea. I see some very influential people pitching this. This idea of, of a millennial reign of Christ that was on earth physically, but it was in the past. And it was hidden in history and, and, you know, they're trying to lie to us about it. So what does that mean then if that's in the past? Well, it means that we're living in the new heavens and new earth right now. It means that there's no more return of Christ. This is it. Like we're just living our lives in this world. No judgment. And some people believe Satan is loose, but again, it's, if Satan was loose, then it's already been a thousand years, right? So ultimately, if, if Christ's reign was a thousand years, like when he came, some people say he came at 70 AD, right? He came at 70 AD, he conquered Nero, and then he instituted his millennial reign. So that would be from 70 AD to 1070, 1073, something like that. Well, if Satan is released... We're already more than a thousand years after that millennial reign ended. That's that doesn't make any sense, right? And another thing I want to point out, this is actually from a an old Christian document called the Didac, which from the second century. This is a great document. And uh, so this is called the Didac and it's or teaching of the twelve apostles. It's it's not considered inspired work, but it is considered historical. And that's important. So if we go to chapter 16, verses 3 through 4, pay attention to this. This is really interesting. This is, this is already in the second century. Okay. This is what Christians believed. Right. So it's a historical document. Right. Verse 3 For in the last days, false prophets and seducers shall be multiplied, and the sheep shall be turned into wolves, and love shall be turned into hate. And because iniquity abundeth, they shall hate each other and persecute each other. And deliver each other up. And then shall the deceiver of the world appear as the Son of God, and shall do signs and wonders, and the earth shall be delivered into his hands, and he shall do unlawful things such as have never happened since the beginning of the world. This is early Christian writing from the second century. This is after 70 AD, when the preterists, the hyperpreterists, say that the millennial reign of Christ already happened. These people were already. I mean, there's a lot of evidence that it didn't happen because first off, where is where is everybody? Did Jesus just leave with everybody and now we're we're here in this crummy world just dying? I don't think so. But this alone proves that Christians still believed in a future 
fulfillment of these ideas. Not that they were futurists, but they believed that the end times were still had to be fulfilled, like the final moments. Okay, so that preterism is a, a false theology, hyper-preterism. That's the one to really watch out for. And preterism as a viewpoint in general is dangerous because it makes you ignore current events and see where you are in history. You just get relaxed, like, oh, that already happened, I don't have to worry about it. Well, do you think that the that God and his infinite genius, how he's constructed the Bible, would would create a situation where only a certain group of people in time would benefit from prophecy? I don't think so. That's, you know, again, that's why I reject preterism. That's why I reject futurism. Because what it implies is that God made prophecy only for like a small generation of people. And everybody else, well, you're SOL. You don't, you know, you don't get any benefit from prophecy because it doesn't concern you. I don't think so. I think there's relevance for every generation. At least that's what I think the Bible teaches. So another question is with preterism, why is the world getting worse? If we're in new heavens and new earth and new Jerusalem, why is the world getting worse? I mean, look around you. The things we mentioned at the beginning of this episode. There's no historical evidence for a 1,000-year reign of Christ. As much as people want to tie it to this architecture in Europe, and again, I'm not going to open this can of worms. It's a very big can of worms, and I hope you don't get lost searching for Tartaria. Do not get lost in that topic. There, a good channel on YouTube is Conspiracy Graduates. They unpack a lot of good stuff when it comes to history and this whole... Yeah, there there has been a lot of rewriting of history. It is very strange. But it's not all been rewritten. And so you have to have a balanced approach. And you need people who are going to do their due diligence. And that channel is really good. Um, but another thing with preterism is if Nero was the Antichrist... Let's, we'll talk more about this in the Antichrist episode far in the future, but if Nero was the Antichrist, who was the false prophet? See how that works? Right? And first off, beasts in prophecy are kingdoms. They're systems. They're not individuals. And so again, you see how that fails prophecy. We'll get into all of this, but Revelation had to be written. If Nero was the Antichrist, Revelation had to be written by 60 A.D., and there's there's a lot of debate on this. I'm leaning more to the fact that it was written after 70 AD. There's a lot of evidence for that too. And so ultimately it's it's questionable. And again, you ignore current events. So you have to be careful with preterism. Don't be so committed to things being fulfilled already in the past that you forget to look at how prophecy is un- fulfilling and unraveling in the present. Now, the fourth view is post-millennialism. We have one more, and that's amillennialism. So these two are kind of related, sort of, kind of. Post-millennialism is interesting. It's an optimistic view. It sees Christ basically coming after a period of time where Christian values and Christian rule, pay attention here, this is really important, Christian rule sort of overtakes and dominates society. And we have this Christian golden age, and then, Jesus shows up when the stage has been ready for him to show up. And we'll get into this a little bit later, but what do they believe? Church replaced Israel. Okay, the millennium is not necessarily a literal period of time, but more figurative, right? Because it's just as we get better and better, as we get more enlightened and, you know, more uh, in tune with Christian values as a society, 
that period of time is unknown. It's not a literal thousand years, it's just a period of time. Christ is reigning in heaven currently. There is a judgment, resurrection, second coming, all at one event. But it's going to happen after this Christian golden age happens. It's optimistic, obviously, composed compared to premillennialism, which is pessimistic generally. Unless you're a pre-trib rapture person, then you're optimistic, but for a different reason, right? Rap, pre-trib rapture dispensationalists, they're optimistic because they're going to escape, right? Post-millennialists are optimistic in terms of the future, like the future is optimistic. It's just going to get better and better before Christ returns. Um, and it looks at Revelation from a preterist lens, mostly. It looks at prophecies in the Bible as things that have already happened, most of it happened, so we're we're on the good end now. We're just going to get better and better. The emphasis, and this is this is the thing you have to be careful with, the emphasis with post-millennials is on Christian nationalism, political involvement of the church. Some people get really crazy with this. Dominionist theology, kingdom now theology, meaning... You know, I don't know if you've seen like kingdom builder entrepreneurs and fusing, it's fusing a very dominionist type of movement with church as a physical institution. Okay, because the church has to dominate. The church has to be all over, present in everybody's life, and then Christ will come. And they believe Satan is bound during this time, but more kind of metaphorically in the sense of not allowing the gospel to be hindered. So what are the problems with this view? Obviously you can tell that I I don't believe in this. And there's major reasons why. First off, if you know what the Talmud, which is a seriously antichrist book in Judaism, what that teaches, they teach the same thing. That it's up to the Jews to, to create this, this environment for the Messiah to show up. We have to do something for Jesus to come. We have to take over the world and have this fleshly, materialistic manifestation of a Christian golden age, of a millennium, we do it through our sinful hearts, not Christ, and then Christ will show up. That is exactly what the Jews believe about their false Messiah. And if you align with that, remember what the Didact said, second century, the deceiver will pretend to be the Son of God. Imagine if that happens, and people believe this eschatology. And they don't remember that you have to meet Christ in the air. They don't remember that the millennial kingdom is not some physical thing that we usher in. And they're deceived. Would they believe Satan if Satan masqueraded as an angel of light, as he masqueraded as the son of God? They would. And that is that is the cost. That is the ultimate cost to this if you don't have discernment. Because that may very well happen. And so it, you can't accept this. Theology, because it aligns with Judaism, ultimately, which rejects Christ, and especially the Talmud. Now, another thing is that relief in this view comes from a material golden age, not a, not the return of Christ to save you from persecution. Now, I'm not talking about a pre-trib rapture. I'm talking about the relief we get when he finally shows up and we meet him in the air and it's all over. That's the hope. That's the hope. That's been the hope of every Christian generation since the ascension. So this changes that hope into some materialistic Christian golden age where it's measured by the influence of the church in politics, in business, in life. That's dangerous. And for very many reasons, because it leads to ecumenism, theocracies, church state unions, right? People who believe this are not prepared to deal with the false Christ, not prepared to deal with tribulation because they think it's the world's getting better. 
Look around you. Is it getting better? I don't think so. You got to read the writing on the wall. And if you think that we're not going to have tribulation, it's just going to keep getting better and better, you will be deceived because when the false light golden age is ushered in, if there is a false Messiah, if there is a false Jesus, you're not going to be prepared. So another thing too, which is they stretch symbolism way too far. Again, because of their optimistic view, post-millennials aren't concerned so much about fulfillment of prophecy. All that stuff was already fulfilled. It's preterist. And, you know, things are just symbolic. And so you lose sense of where you're at in history. It doesn't prepare you adequately to have discernment. It is a very low-level discerning theology. And that's the danger, is no discernment. So if we pull up the graph and we look at how that compares to the other ones, so we look at uh, post-millennialism, so you have the cross, you have, you know, history, and then you have kind of this millennial golden age, who knows when it starts, who knows when it ends, who knows how long it is, but it's basically this gradual unfolding of Christian values throughout history, and when those are at the maximum and, you know, everybody's just Christian and doing great, then the second coming will happen in the last judgment. So that's how that compares with the other ones, where obviously there's a, for the pre-tribulation, there's a second coming, secret second coming of Jesus, then another second coming, then the last judgment, and then post-tribulation you have second coming, millennial, last judgment. So you can see that these all have kind of similar elements, but they're different in very key and core ways. Um, and so, of course, the last one is amillennialism. And amillennialism is kind of different from the rest of them in some sense because it sees that the millennium, it's similar to postmillennialism in that it doesn't see millenn- the millennium as a literal period of a thousand years. It sees it as a figurative longer period of time. And But the period of time it sees is from the cross to the second coming of Jesus. It's a spiritual period of time, the church age, basically. And basically, it's it's a time where Satan is bound, not in the sense that he's not hurting people or, you know, wreaking havoc, but he's bound from spiritually controlling the world. The gospel has been moved out into the nations. He's not been able to stop that. People have the ability to believe and they have the choice to believe. Amillennialism believes that the first resurrection in Revelation 20 is being born again. It's talking about a spiritual reality, not a physical, literal timing thing, like there's going to be first resurrection, then another resurrection, and then a wicked resurrection, right? Um, It believes that the book of Revelation is symbolic, that there's a lot of parallelism, recapitulation. These are things we didn't talk about in the beginning, but it has to do with figurative reading and, and typological reading of the Bible. So when you see parallelism and recapitulation, those are elements of repeating something but from a different perspective or paralleling an idea, saying it again but in a different way. Those things happen throughout Scripture and certainly throughout prophecy. But some people who read things literally read those passages completely differently. And some examples are, for example, the the war in Revelation 12 between Michael and the dragon and the binding of Satan. Those are the same event. They're talking about the same things. Revelation 16, 19, and 20, the war, the nations gathering for war against Jesus, 
that happens in those three chapters. It's all the same event. It's not, if you read those literally and, and you're being strictly literal, you see those as three different wars, which is not true. But if you see that these are just recapitulation, repeating from a different perspective to teach something else, then it's the same event, right? So this is how amillennialism, amillennialism tends to view scripture from more symbolic perspectives. Um, this and premillennialism, not pre-tribulation rapture premillennialism, but historic premillennialism, the first one we covered, those are the most popular historically in the church. So these are the two most popular belief systems. Uh, they believe the tribulation is throughout the church age, right? Throughout the millennium, not just seven literal years right at the end. They believe that there's an apostasy at the end, right before Christ returns, right? Compared to post-millennialism, the one we just covered, which doesn't believe in an apostasy, but rather things are getting better. There's gonna, it's going to be the opposite. People are going to believe more before Christ returns. And amillennialism believes the church replaced Israel and that the Old Testament promises were fulfilled. So you can see there, there's a lot of differences between all these different views, but what is the problem with amillennialism? Well, one of the problems is that they can take too many liberties with spiritualizing things, like in Revelation and Daniel, to fit anything, right? When you spiritualize a prophecy or when you appeal to a spiritual meaning, and metaphor and figurative things, you can make anything mean anything. So what is the problem with that? Well, it's hard to understand where in history you are. Now, I'm not saying that there aren't spiritual meanings to things. But again, we talked about this at the very beginning. You can either be too literal or too spiritual. you got to walk the narrow road. you got to find that they're both true in various situations and context. That's why, again, I believe that the historical way of interpreting Scripture is the best way to do it is the biblical way because if you're just spiritual then you you lose sense of where you're at and you run the risk of not paying attention to the things happening around you and not caring and, and again being deceived you run the risk of being deceived they can also be too optimistic because now amillennialism has a lot of varying viewpoints there's some people that believe certain things and others you know so some people are very optimistic with amillennialism, and they can dr gradually drift over into post-millennialism. That's happened quite a few times. And what that does is, well, you ignore the end times. You, you start to, you know, you go from basically thinking, well, the, millennium, the millennium is now, Christ is reigning, and you drift into, yeah, we're getting better, and we're going we're gonna to take over the world. Christianity is going to take over the world, and the church is going to be glorious, and then Christ will return. So it's very easy to make that transition, and, and lose yourself in the things that we just mentioned with post-millennialism. Boy, that's a tongue twister saying this millennialism over and over again. But again, it just makes things too general. Another thing that amillennialism suffers from is they believe in the immortality of the soul. And look, this is going to be a whole other series. <laughs> so many people believe in this pagan idea of a immortal soul that we all have that survives after death. And there's no such thing. The Bible never teaches that. We have read that into Scripture and changed theology over the last several centuries, at least, because these things originated with pagan philosophers who then influenced other pagan philosophers who converted to Christianity. 
like Origen, for example, back in the third century or whatever he was. These things do not come from Hebrew history. The Hebrews did not believe in an immortal soul. They believed in a contingent soul. Yes, we have souls, but your soul doesn't continue after death. Right? Hebrews 9.27. What does the Bible say? And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Isaiah 45.18. Now, this one's a different topic, but it relates to what we're talking about. For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, he is God who formed the earth and made it. He established it. He did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. This is important. I am the Lord and there is no other. So these two verses I lump together because of why. Because if you believe in an immortal soul, a lot of people who subscribe to amillennialism believe that, you know, it's funny because they're very spiritually minded when they're reading scriptures. They, they allegorize things quite a bit. But then they read things like John seeing the souls of the beheaded people. They read that literally. And they say, that, oh, the souls in heaven, they're just waiting, you know, judgment. And they're there reigning with Christ in heaven right now as kind of these ghostly angelic bodies. You know, so they read that literally because they believe in an immortal soul. And that's another deception. It's a major deception because the earth was made to be inhabited, just like Isaiah 45, 18 says. It was made to be inhabited. Now, does that mean that there will be a thousand-year literal reign of Jesus Christ on earth? No, but I do believe we will be on earth when Jesus Christ comes. There will be a new heavens, new earth, just like the Bible says. We're going to have resurrected physical bodies. We're not going to be in heaven. We're going to be on earth. The earth that God created in the beginning was beautiful. It was amazing. Imagine just being part of that all over again, but yet with the full revelation of Scripture and history, it's going to be amazing. So all of that is our future, but again, if you believe in amillennialism, it can drift you into some other false beliefs because the immortality of the soul is tied to a lot of different things. And again, this is a series I plan on doing on this because it is a deception. You know, people believe in things like, Christians believe in things like reincarnation and you know, past lives and all this kind of stuff. And if you knew the truth, the truth is completely contradictory to the rest of the world. Every single culture believed in an immortal soul because they were deceived by fallen angels. There's a whole study on this, but the point is this. The fallen angels and Satan couldn't get worship for life, right? They couldn't, they don't create anything. God is the God of life. He's the God of the living. So what do they do? They fooled man into getting worship through death. All the ancient gods of the underworld, they were fallen angels, they were different versions of Satan, and he was getting people to worship because they thought they were going to be alive in the spirit world. Yes, there is a spirit world, but it's not for us. There are angels, there are demons, there are spirits, but it's not for us. We don't get to be part of it, and that's the lie. So they give you a half-truth, then they give you the lie that you can be part of it. And so then you got to pray for the dead and you have to build a pyramid so you can be in the afterlife and be, you know, so you can rule in the afterlife, right? So all these things are connected to pagan ideologies. And I'm just skimming the surface now, but it's one of the traps of amillennialism. So again, the first trap is over-spiritualizing things so you don't have any clue where you're at. And you're disregarding the impact of history. It doesn't help you focus on anything specific. It's very generalized. When you spiritualize things too much, 
you you run the risk of not understanding where you are in history and to to see who you need to be watching out for to not be deceived. Okay? And that's a danger. The other danger is that you've run into this immortal immortality of the soul thing. And you know, it's not a it's not a critical danger. You're not, you know, questioning your salvation, but it it could lead you into some traps in other theolog- theological areas. Like reincarnation. There's a lot of Christians who believe in reincarnation. And that's a nonsense, right? And other people who are teaching, you know, word of faith things. That's, you know, believing in the immortal soul is like key to that. But look, there's only immortality through Jesus Christ. That's the whole point. When Satan told Eve, you shall not die or you will not die, that's part of this lie, the immortal soul. God said, hey, you're going to die if you are not connected to me, if you're not obedient to me, you're going to die. That's the whole point. Every Hebrew that wrote the Bible believed in a contingent reality where we were contingent upon God, God's favor on our life. If you believe you're going to live on after you die in some sort of quasi-reality, that opens the door to a lot of, a lot of lies. Think of all the lies that rely on that. Simulation theory, past lies, reincarnation, uh, you know, communal consciousness, all these Eastern philosophies. Look, I've done all that stuff. I believed in it for a greater part of my life. And then I realized what the Bible said, which is contradictory to all those things. The Hebrews were unique in history for their belief in a contingent soul. So you have to ask yourself, where do your beliefs come from? Where do they come from? They don't come from the Bible. But here's the last problem with amillennialism, and this is why it leads into postmillennialism. The millennium being now, as a spiritual reality, people who have believed historically in amillennialism, like St. Augustine, have described it as the church age, which is true. It is a church age. It is the church age. We are in the church age. But what do you mean by the word church? Do you mean body of believers or do you mean physical institution? And so this is the problem. You have the Catholic Church and the Orthodox Church and these big mega churches that have an establishment and have a status quo to keep that have this eschatology. And yes, it's, oh, it's the church age, which leads into postmillennialism, where the church has to dominate and conquer. And the church is the thing where the church here, in quotation marks, is the institution. So this is a big danger with amillennialism, is that you confuse church as in the gospel, the proclamation of the gospel, the believers coming to Christ with the institution. And it leads into more of a dominious kind of theology, which these are all false theologies and very dangerous theologies because they lead you into giving allegiance to the beast, which we'll get into more later. But look, I hope this has been informative. Let's take a look at the um, final graph here. If you have a you have the cross where Jesus came, and then you have the millennium beginning right after the cross at his ascension symbolically, right? It's a spiritual rule where he's ruling in heaven spiritually over his enemies. Then the second coming and last judgment is one event where the final enemy to be destroyed is death. And that happens at the resurrection, which I think that has some merit, and we're going to get into that. But there are big, pro- big problems with each view. I hope you've seen that. Uh, I hope you've seen that each view has something interesting to offer, but there are big problems with each view that you have to sharpen your discernment. Each view uses the Bible extensively to justify itself, so you have to 
study carefully, right? You have to be able to study carefully, get into that perspective, see why they believe it, and then get out of that perspective because it's not correct. So hopefully by now you're questioning your view if you had one, hopefully, uh, which is good. I think that's good. If you don't have a view, I hope you've at least been able to ask some questions and to start piquing your interest into like, what do I believe about the end times? All these things kind of sound interesting, but it's so confusing at the same time, right? And I certainly went through that myself. Um, preparing this series has helped me quite a bit, so I hope to share everything I've learned with you uh, as well as what the Bible says. That's the most important part. What does the Bible say? And that's pretty much it. We're going to devote the rest of our series to unpacking things like, is Christ king right now? Is Satan bound? Um, is the What's the relationship between the church and Israel? Those are going to be the next several episodes so we can get definitive answers on these from the Bible. What does the Bible say? And we're also going to unpack Daniel, the book of Revelation, the different prophecies, the time prophecies, the beasts of Revelation. We're going to get into it all. Like I said, every major main end time topic we're going to look into and very deeply. Um, but by process of elimination to help you come to a clear biblical view of the end times. And that's not going to fit into any one of these categories. You will have views from certain views. Like, for example, I lean towards amillennialism in some respects, but I disagree with some of the things I just mentioned to you. Uh, you know, the Catholics and Orthodox use that eschatology to justify their institution, which is a false theology. The church is the group of believers. It's not a physical institution. It never was. It's never not supposed to be. So we have to have discernment. Everything that we accept, we have to accept it with a grain of salt and study and show ourselves approved. So hope this has been helpful and hope it's been educating. We'll get into it more and more deeply every time. This has been just a uh, scratching of the surface and I'll leave my resources in the bottom of the episode. We'll see you next time. Have a good one. God bless. God bless.